0: Hi, welcome to our podcast. Um, I'm Mary Abazia, and of course, with me is Sean Wellen, who's having a birthday, and uh Tom Spitali. And uh we're also Good celebrating birthday, Sean. <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> we're also celebrating that we have done over a hundred podcasts. Uh, how we've hung out that long together is crazy. But anyway, um, what we love to do is uh see real things that are happening out in the world, either through the news or with our clients. And then break them down and figure out what's really working or sometimes what's really making it a disaster. Um, in this case, uh, we kind of fell in love and we've fallen in love for a long time with Barnes and Noble. But they seem to have just a whole new stride to them. And we wanted to figure out how they're able to survive in the face of Amazon um, being such a, you know, a big competitor. So uh Tom, why don't you uh kick us off and, and talk a little bit more about Barnes and Noble? And they're they're by the way, they're opening 30 stores in 2023. So they're on a growth path.
1: Yeah, they've shifted the narrative a little bit. Many, many, many bookstores have uh have been defeated by the juggernaut that is Amazon, as they came along as world's biggest bookstore. And of course, that was the original Amazon intent. Um, you know, over the course of Amazon's first decade or so just uh, made it very difficult for many bookstores to compete. Um, one of the things that we like to talk about though that that Barnes and Noble did early on was that they recognized through gathering research that um, they, they well, it was a huge insight people look at book shopping as a form of entertainment. The data that Barnes & Noble had was that people were spending a long time, like three times longer in their bookstores than they did in other retail establishments. And many would have taken that information as the, the, the you know, a finding that it was an inefficient experience in the bookstores, but Barnes & Noble did uh, what we always uh, advocate, which is they kept asking why. And they discovered that book shopping was a form of entertainment. They put in the books, the coffee shops, and they have been able to weather the storm of Amazon and not only weather the storm, but with this latest information, Mary, how many stores did you say they're opening? 30. 30. They're 30 opening in 30 40. in
0: 2023.
1: 30 bricks and mortar stores, um, which is which is a huge, huge triumph for that company and for their their staying power.
0: Yeah, that was in, by the way, that was in 1971 when um, uh, Leonardo Ruggio had bought just the name and had the the Fifth Avenue store. And by having that insight, he grew to be one of the world's largest bookstores. But then um, in 2019, they got bought by a hedge fund because they, you know, kind of gone up and down. So, Um, and Sean, they have a very famous CEO that you know over there. Uh, across the pond do you want to talk a little bit about their new well,
2: ceo the, the the business that took that that took over is actually owned by venture capitalist now the original ceo i don't believe is part of the business but waterstones was a very similar business to barnes and noble and it was started by um a staffer from wh smith which is a famous retailer of stationery and magazines and and, and books that you see in many airports and um he had a vision to to create this this more focused environment of of of, uh, of a library almost bookstore, and it it didn't work. To cut a long story short, he took his redundancy check, started his store with his vision. Subsequently, sold it back to W. H. Smith for about forty seven million dollars. So it was an, a a good return on his redundancy investment. And they've always had that sort of. Um, similar approach to Barnes and, and Noble. And, and, and since they've been bought by venture capital and then they've now merged or, or taken over Barnes and Noble, they've become a much bigger global entity. But I think to me, the, the key to this is, and it comes down to those people that have worked with us know that we're always trying to find the benefit sought. What is it that customers truly look for? And of course, it's choice and it's convenience and all those things where Amazon win hands down. But there's an element of, particularly with books and also with music, which is browsing. There's something enjoyable about browsing a bookstore because you'll walk through and you'll see books that you might not have come across before because they're on display or in certain parts of the of the bookstore. And you can take a moment to, to have a a read. Tangible, you're holding it. You can look at the, the the chapters and see what's covered. You can maybe flip it over and read the reviews. It's a very visual experience and that is what you can't do online yeah they can serve recommendations and sure, you can look for a particular book by name or a genre but you can't have that that joy of just handling and browsing and just picking stuff up it's how we used to buy music back in the day sitting at those bins with the lp records in flicking through pulling out and seeing what was what maybe going onto the headphones and having to listen whatever they were featuring that that environment of 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 exposing yourself to the the content that you want to buy isn't easily replicated elsewhere. And I think that's the other point of this is the there's always a segment of the market that's going to be underserved by the market leader because of their specific needs. And I think that's the beauty of Barnes and Noble and businesses like Waterstones, they figured out that there's a sufficient market there for people that want they don't want fast commerce. They want they want slow consideration and browsing. As Tom said, it's a form of entertainment or somewhere to go while your kids are getting new school shoes. it says that was my oasis. I'd run off there. Yeah, I
1: think a lot of times when we push people in our B2B workshops to go beyond benefits. And move to the top of the benefits ladder, and find out what are some of the emotions that customers have. A lot of times they think it's a, you know a, a a a waste of time, especially in 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 B two B, where they think there's not a lot of emotion. And another thing that people have difficulty with, even if they really get into the exercise, and they find a list of of, of values that. Um, that exist in the minds and hearts of, of their, their customers, they don't really know what to do with it. And this is like such an interesting case because what Barnes and Nobles did was they figured out this emotion, this emotion of entertainment, you know, book shopping is a form of entertainment. And they went to another tool that we often uh, work with our clients on um which uh, we call the concentric circles <laughs> or the you know the value proposition um, uh, format where you start looking at the core product, augmented products, services and information as a way to say how can I differentiate my offer, whether it's the actual product itself or the packaging or the services of the information And this is a direct line from, discovering a emotion, entertainment, and looking at the services rung around there and going, oh, well, here is where we can differentiate because everybody's got the same books. And frankly, really hard to compete on the basis of price with a company like Amazon. And so not only does everybody have the same books, but likely Amazon has lower lower prices. But here's a way that we can take this emotion of entertainment value and create an environment that is truly different from the Amazon experience. So it's a direct line between two steps in our process that can lead you to differentiate in a market that seems pretty straightforward, right? The, the distribution and selling of books.
0: Yeah. but I, oh. I think that um, the CEO did most remarkably recently is that it's a form of segmentation. He allows the bookstores to serve local taste, and that's what—that's why a lot of the independents that didn't go out of business survived is that they would cater to the needs of the local. So not only were they looking at customer needs but you know somebody in Texas may have very different needs than somebody in Los Angeles and so he's giving them the flexibility to design the stores and feature things that are appropriate for that market which hadn't been done before it was like a cookie cutter and i think that that gives them legs to be able to survive as they continue. So Sean, where are you say?
2: I was i was thinking that the um Another good strategic question to ask yourself, in particular, if you're facing a truly dominant competitor, is they've achieved their dominance clearly by by focusing on some some pretty important elements of, of their offer, whether it's distribution, whether it's supply chain and cost out. Whoever your massive competitor is, they've probably been doing something right. So a good question to ask is obviously not how can we compete head to head. You really can't. But what have they left behind? What did they sacrifice in order to create their better offer for the the vast majority of customers? Mm. Who's been left behind? What gaps have been left in the market? That niche approach has worked in every industry and market. There's usually a way of of not thinking, how can I be like Amazon? But how can I have this counterpoint to what they do and say, and major on that, be the the exact opposite in many ways or at least fill the gap that they must have left behind look for those gaps that's often well worth your time to explore we we wrote about
1: it in the in the book the, the original accidental marketer book by the way if you're listening to this we're getting ready to release number 2 uh case studies um uh, uh, an accident the second in a series of the accidental marketer books with, with, that features a lot of case studies but one of the things that we talked about when we were talking about differentiation in the original book was this thing that Sean's talking about, we call it the opposite good, the opposite good. And what, what it means is whatever that behemoth or big competitor owns or does for the marketplace, there typically is something that's opposite. That's good. You know, so, so Amazon is called the calls itself the world's biggest bookstore right so you know you've got massive selection everything that you could ever ever want you know what's what's the what's the opposite of that I mean you know what's the opposite of being colossal and big and uh, it it really is kind of being the non-antiseptic you know version of 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 a, of a bookstore, the 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 ability to relax and to to feel human and 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 um, to sit down and have a coffee and and like Mary said, you know maybe maybe even even though Amazon's got the world's biggest bookstore, maybe even find something local that you you know that's not available elsewhere. I don't know, but the idea here being that you can always find an opposite good to whatever is owned by the big competitor in the market. The opposite of big is also is also sometimes fast. You know, people can think about a competitor that's huge and they think, yeah, but they're probably slow <laughs> because they're, well, yeah. big. you know,
0: Adidas did that with Nike. I mean, to your point, Nike was, you know, they had all the endorsements and they were growing and um, Adidas was fifth Or lower and they just thought there's a group of people that are kind of put off by this and so you know as as both Sean and Tom are saying they appeal to people by saying endorsed by no one and it's like finally you know they're real people again and that moved them up to number three and maybe even two in some markets so they just did the opposite good for Nike and it, it worked incredibly well for them for a while.
2: Yeah. It's that old saying, you can't please all of the people all of the time. And it, it's true of any business. You can't please every customer all of the time. You're always going to leave something behind. And and part of the art of of following in the in the in the footsteps of a giant is to is to find those pockets that have been left behind and tailor your offer to to meet them. And even though Barnes and Noble are a lot bigger than you might think of a traditional niche being, I'm sure in terms of global sales, they're very minor. But in terms of an actual business, very significant. So don't confuse niche with the scraps off the table there's often some pretty meaty opportunities that just can't be catered for in the terms of the bookshop there's the experience the 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 sensory experience you know the 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 calmness the decor the the smell of a bookstore the tangibility of holding things you can't do any of those things online they're not important to every, every, everybody or, or even to many but they are to some and that's always the always the key is finding out what is it that that they literally can't provide and then either because there is a market already for it or if, if you feel like really pushing the boat out create a market remind people that this is this is something that you're missing Um, create a need, we call that, which is harder to do, but it gives you options in terms of your strategic vision.
1: We talk talk a lot about... Pardon Oh,
2: we, we are. We you're, you're, Tom, normally it's me that gets the shepherd's crook around the neck <laughs> saying, Time's out by Mary, but she's picked on in. you today. Yeah, fine, I'm 100%. just enjoying this moment. Tom's been told to wrap up. He's got the wrap up sign at the Oscars. The microphone's going to start coming down. So,
1: dragged off the stage. I guess what I was just going to say <laughs> is that we, we you know, we, we're talking um today about a very traditional and very mature business, book selling, you know, and we do a lot of work with companies that have that are in mature markets and one of our specialties is to do just what we're talking about here is you take a series of our tools and not all of those usage usage of those tools leads to um new opportunities but a hundred percent of the time if you go through the litany of tools you find opportunities to differentiate mature products even in businesses as old as as bookstores are you might use influence mapping to find a, a you know a new stakeholder in your b2b business or segmentation to reveal a segment that doesn't like endorsements or whatever like mary was talking about to mix our b2c and b2b metaphors
2: mary's gonna cut your mic soon tom i'm just warning you
1: we're we're, we're we fine i'm gonna just keep going until she does <laughs> the kind of about va- values and relating to, to to services you know new values that nobody's catering to and leading the services this is kind of of, of of what we do in a workshop that helps companies that have very mature products to differentiate themselves. I'm done.
0: Good, thank you. Um, yeah, so visit your local uh, Barnes and Noble soon, hopefully, and support uh, their amazing business. And uh, hopefully, you have a few ideas for your business. So, thank you very much for joining us.
1: Thank you.